joined today on the podcast by a very special guest, Terry Molesky. Terry is a retired senior correspondent for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's television news service. He worked in 52 countries during 40 years with the CBC and was its first Middle East correspondent, later spending eight years in Washington during the Reagan, Bush Sr. and Clinton administrations. His first visit to India was in 1967 when he interviewed Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. In the 1980s, he covered the bombing of Air India Flight 182 and more recently, the 2004 tsunami in Tamil Nadu, the 2008 terrorist attacks in Mumbai and two trips to India by Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He also covered the Air India trial in British Columbia and the judicial inquiry into the bombing ending in 2010. He retired in Ottawa in 2016, but continued to appear on CBC and wrote an account of the Khalistan movement, Blood for Blood, 50 Years of the Global Khalistan Project, published by HarperCollins India in 2021, a book we're going to be discussing today. And I just finished reading it and would highly recommend it to everyone. It's available on Amazon and there's a link to it in the podcast description. So welcome, Terry. Thank you so much for joining there us today. Yes. I'm glad I'm looking forward to it. Thanks yeah. for calling. Great, Terry. So, you know, I want to start at a very kind of basic level and you cover this in your book as well. But for those listeners that may not be aware of it, can you just explain very basically what is the Khalistan movement conceptually, at least as uh, discussed by its proponents? The idea is fundamentally that Sikhs cannot live a sovereign, free lifestyle under the Indian yoke that they are different, they're separate, and that they should have a separate country. Uh, that country would presumably be carved out uh, principally out of the state of Punjab, where the, the only Indian state where they're in a majority, of course, uh, about 58% in Punjab today. Um, although uh, recently, just last October, the end of October on the anniversary of the assassination of Indira Gandhi, uh, they produced a new map showing the imagined new country of Khalistan, land of the pure, uh, which would include large chunks of Rajasthan and all of Himachal Pradesh and Haryana and parts of Uttar Pradesh and on and on and, and the capital at Shimla in the mountains. Uh, so they still have this dream of an independent country. Uh, and of course, you asked for a for a short version. Uh, it, it, the, that story should have ended really in about ninety three, nineteen ninety three, after a decade and a half of extreme violence, in which at least twenty thousand people lost their lives, mainly Sikhs, by the way, who were of course fighting on both sides, Sikhs in the Punjab police, Sikhs in the various uh, Khalistani militant organizations. Uh, it should have ended there, and that should be the end of that short summary. But of course, it's not over. Uh, they're still at it, and now the reason it's in the news these days is because there's been a resurgence, uh, online at least, of the Khalistan movement uh, for independence, mainly in the diaspora where uh, although it's an extremely unpopular idea in India, uh, at the last elections in Punjab, the only separatist party running 
got not 1% of the vote, but a small fraction of 1% of the vote, 0.32% or something, a microscopic share of the vote, although it's very unpopular in India and in Punjab, notably, uh, it remains alive, let's put it that way, in the diaspora, which of course is large and influential. And here in Canada, for example, we have roughly half a million Sikhs. They're an important voting bloc. And they uh, they can get the political establishment to show up to their Vaisakhi Day parades, uh, to smile and wave as pictures of gun-toting martyrs are wheeled through the streets of Surrey, British Columbia, for example, uh, where the author of the singular uh, most prominent and most deadly terrorist attack uh, in the history of the movement, indeed in all of history until the 9-11 attacks in the United States, uh, the author of the Air India bombing, the bombing of Flight 182 in uh, June of 1985, the mastermind of that terrorist attack is glorified and revered, venerated with giant posters on the side of an important Gurdwara in British Columbia as a hero and a martyr of the Sikh nation. So that tells you that, yes, the story did not end as it should have in 1993 when the armed insurgency died out, but continues today and is animated principally by uh, the push for a referendum. Uh, which is being organized by a group called Sikhs for Justice, is an American lawyer who runs it, uh, Gopatwan Singh Panun, who's banned as a terrorist, as you know, in India, but is very active online, uh, drumming up votes. And uh, his effort to have this referendum actually did get underway a year late because of the pandemic, uh, but it did get underway at the end of October on the same anniversary I mentioned before, the anniversary of the murder of Indira Gandhi at the end of October. Um, and he managed to get some people enough to fill uh, a TV screen uh, if you kept the shot fairly tight. Uh, and they claim to have uh, 40,000 Sikhs who turned out in the UK, for example, for the inaugural round of voting in this uh, so-called referendum. Uh, whether they actually did or not is doubtful. And whether those figures are reliable is extremely doubtful. Uh, there was one Sikh who posted on Twitter at the time that he had successfully registered to vote as in the name of Angelina Jolie. <laughs> uh, so... You know, he said there was no, nobody checked anyone's credentials. You could, you know, it looked like you could vote as many times as you like. So um, it, it, you, you may want to dismiss it as a fiasco, uh, as a farce, but it is indeed keeping the idea alive. The idea of Khalistan is still out there, and some of its adherents are extremely militant. Uh, and, uh, I mean, death threats still happen. I get my share. Uh, against those who tell a different story, such as the one I just told, casting doubt on the referendum. So that's the uh, not, not the shortest summary you've ever heard of this <laughs> issue, but uh, perhaps that'll do for now. Oh, wonderful. You know, one uh, 
thing that you mentioned that was very notable is when you were talking about the geographic contours of the supposed Khalistani state, uh, there was no mention of any of the historic spiritual cities and territories that are now in modern day Pakistan, um, whether that's Nankana Sahib, uh, Lahore, which was a previous capital of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. Of course, Nankana Sahib around that area is where Guru Nanak, the first Sikh guru was born. Uh, why, why is there this schizophrenia? in terms of how the geograph geography of uh, a, a supposed state is uh, imagined. It's an interesting omission, isn't it? I'm, I, I, and I'm glad you noticed that a lot of people do. I mean, the, the, the sites that you mentioned, I mean, Lahore is the seat of Ranjit Singh's Sikh empire 200 years ago. Uh, and Nankana Sahib, the, the, the birthplace of Guru Nanak, no less. Um, these are absolutely fundamental to seek culture and history. And yet, although they make these very expensive claims on the eastern side of the Radcliffe line, a line drawn by a British bureaucrat at the time of partition, 1947, they're very ambitious in claiming chunks of Rajasthan and Himachal Pradesh and all the rest of it. But they make no claims, not an inch of Pakistani land, despite the fundamental importance of Pakistani Punjab, to seek culture and history, as I say. And uh, one uh, can wonder endlessly about this, but I think the answer is is easy to guess. Uh, That would be the end of the essential additive in the whole Khalistan movement for the past 50 years, namely the support of its big brother, Pakistan. I don't mean individuals in Pakistan, I mean the state of Pakistan which right from the time of the Bangladesh war in 71, uh, swore to get revenge on India because that was a humiliating defeat, the tearing off of East Pakistan and it's morphing into Bangladesh. Uh, And uh, they wanted to bleed India, make India pay. And uh, the Khalistanis helped them do it. So they provided a space, safe haven, places to train and get medical care and places to live for Khalistani militants who were uh, back in the day able to slip across the border and carry out attacks inside Indian Punjab. So I think that uh, the lack of any claim upon Pakistani Punjab in the otherwise very ambitious claims made by the separatists, uh, I think is suggestive that they, they know that they cannot afford to forfeit uh, the essential support of Pakistan. I mean, wh- where else are they, could, could they hang out? Where else could they train uh, and prepare for terrorist attacks inside Punjab? I mean, nobody else is going to give them safe haven. And there they are right on the border. Without that, it's not, it's not clear to me that the movement would have survived this long at all. And of course, the irony in all of this is that as we speak, the Sikh population that's remaining in Pakistan continues to face religious persecution, um, kidnappings along with Hindu and Christian girls um, and leaving the country. So, um, you know. Well, they obviously are not speaking out on those issues because they believe that the Khazan agenda is bigger than that. No, they're not doing it because they love the Sikh. Yeah. <laughs> Considering that, I mean, the Sikh population, you know, has, has plummeted 
Like back in the day, we were talking, you know, in Punjab, we were talking about two million. And uh, now, what, what, how many Sikhs are left in in Pakistan? Uh, may, maybe ten thousand to be generous. No, maybe. Uh, some people say it's a lot less. The official, even the real figure, is hard to come by. Well, um, I, I mean, as you know, I think you've written about this: uh, the abductions, forced conversions, uh, gunpoint marriages of uh, Christian and Hindu and Sikh girls inside Pakistan continues apace. Uh, they don't get recourse under the law in Pakistan. They rarely win cases uh, when they attempt to return to their families. And yet, this is the country which apparently is the greatest friends of the Khalistanis, not the Sikhs, but the Khalistanis. And those are two separate terms. Absolutely. And, you know, you when you hear about the Khalistan movement, you hear about the justifications for it. You hear about the territorial claims, but you really don't hear about what a... Uh, projected state would look like? What would be the institutions that would run the state? What type of government would it be? Who would be allowed to stay there? Because even the, the, the territories that are supposedly supposed to make up Khalistan have large Hindu majorities in some of those states like Himachal Pradesh, Haryana, uh, Delhi, of course, um, and parts of Rajasthan. So has there been a discussion or has there been any information put out by the proponents of Khalistan on what exactly a future potential state would look like? Well, the answer is yes, there has been information that's been put out, but it makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, it, it suggests a complete lack of seriousness. It, it's, it's something that they sort of just suddenly dream up and they make a map and they say, well, that'll be, that'll be Khalistan. And then they make a different map. So the most recent map, the one that I described to you a moment ago, uh, was produced again on that famous anniversary, October the 31st, the end of October, the uh, assassination of Indira Gandhi in 1984, that's when they called a press conference and issued the new map with the, the new additions that I described. They previously hadn't claimed anything from Uttar Pradesh, for example. Uh, now they do. They had previously never said up until October of last year that Shimla would be the capital of the new country. And when you say, well, okay, well, what is going on here? I mean, what is, um, what is the idea um, of, uh, of, the, of the new borders? They say, well, you know, we want, the reason we don't claim any of anything in Pakistan is because we're only claiming areas which have a Sikh majority. Oh, it's news to me that Haryana has a Sikh majority. Or Himachal Pradesh. Or Rajasthan. <laughs> Or Delhi. And now I think Delhi's off the new map and, and there are additions elsewhere. But there's, not a, there's no Sikh majority unless they confine it to their 58% and majority as it stands now in Punjab proper, Indian Punjab. So uh, it's completely incoherent. I even had a gentleman uh, write an angry article in one of the uh, British Columbia uh, Punjabi language uh, papers, um, at least in his English language edition, I don't read Punjabi. And he said, yeah, that's the, that's the reason we don't claim any of Pakistan is because of the Sikh majority. We want we, we want to only have the vote in places where there's a Sikh majority. And there isn't. So that's why I say uh, it just makes no sense. So don't, you know, I mean, I studied this. And if you ask me to explain what they're getting at, 
I would have a very hard time. I mean, I, I can't account for it. it. It just doesn't make any sense. And I, I and I conclude from that that it's not that there's a lack of reality to their claims and a lack of seriousness. I mean, are, are we supposed to swallow this? Are we, is this supposed to be a serious answer that they're only voting in places? Do they think that we can't read the census and we don't know? That there is no Sikh majority in Haryana or Himachal Pradesh or Rajasthan, so it, it, it's a puzzle, and I, I think that lack of seriousness betrays what's really going on, which is a deep-seated um, traditional resentment of Hindu domination among a certain small minority of the Sikh community, mainly today in the diaspora but not in India. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's really about. And this, is a, and this is a way to give expression to that resentment uh, and uh, to their grief over the events of 94 and so forth. But uh, one suspects, let's put it that way, that the quest for a real independent state is a bit of a masquerade. Very well put. Uh, before we kind of shift over to the diaspora, as you mentioned, where the issue is really most kept alive, um, as well as some of the events in the past in Canadian history, um, maybe if you could describe a little bit about during the 80s and early 90s, what did the violence look like? Who was targeted? Um, and also, along with the violence, um, what was the messaging that went out around, um, you know, was the hateful rhetoric um, against those that opposed it or against Hindus? If you could talk a little bit about about that um, and kind of to give our viewers, our listeners a little bit more context. Well, the, it started, didn't it, with Bindran Wallach, the, the, the patron saint of the Khalistan movement, Sanjay Nalsing, Bindran Wallach, was a fiery uh, an extremist, a preacher, uh, who didn't like people who stood against him and who were not uh, obedient to his version, his puritanical version. Uh, of, of Sikhism, bodies tended to appear uh, in the streets of his enemies. Um, even a very senior Punjab police officer uh, was assassinated after praying at the Golden Temple at all in 1983. Uh, so, uh, as Bindran influence grew within uh, Punjab, uh, he started to pick off his enemies. Uh, and uh, one of them was a journalist, Mr. Narayan, in uh, uh, 1981, I believe. And uh, there were uh, reprisals similar to that against anyone who stood in Bindarwali's way. That's where the violence began. Then, of course, it spread uh, after uh, Rali had barricaded himself, basically, in the Golden Temple, uh, defied the government of Punjab and the central government, uh, and uh, fatefully, Indira Gandhi ordered Operation Blue Star to clean them up, uh, to stop the killing, and to, uh, having nurtured Rali as a counterweight to the Akali Dal, don't get me started on all of that. <laughs> Politics of the time, uh, the point is that 
Uh, Operation Blue Star was a disaster. It was ill-conceived. Clumsy is a mild way to put it. Uh, and many died who did not need to die. And although the Indian Army had been advised strenuously by the British and by others uh, to conduct a kind of surgical strike, land a helicopter, and basically abduct Bindran Wali from the roof of the Langa Hall where he held court each day, uh, that in the end did not happen. And it was a bloodbath. Uh, at least hundreds died, probably over a thousand, but not the 10,000 that they speak of now. They, again, they play with numbers. So then the violence expanded. Uh, then there was the retaliatory assassination of Indira Gandhi. Then there was what was euphemistically called at the time the Delhi riots. Well, they were a lot worse than riots, weren't they? Uh, this was a pogrom. This was a series of massacres, not just one, in which thousands of innocent Sikhs lost their lives. That ignited anger all over the world. Uh, even among Sikhs who really wanted no part of the separatist struggle. They may have been patriotic pro-India Sikhs. The majority were then and are today. But don't ask them to swallow a disaster like 1984. So that escalated and, and eventually became an, a, a serious armed insurgency by quite bloodthirsty separatist gangs of very flying various banners. Sometimes they were at war with each other. They resembled in many ways criminal gangs. They imposed religious edicts at gunpoint. They issued bulletins saying, you know, if, if reporters don't tell the story our way, a newspaper will be burned. The reporters will be cut down. The delivery boy who brings the paper will be cut down. Uh, we'll burn you at the stake. We'll burn you alive if you defy our orders, if you, even if you transgress with respect to proper religious dress. Doctors, judges, journalists, nurses, teachers were all killed by these gangs. And this is a part of the story which is often edited out, normally edited out, by Kalistanis, namely the uh, uh, wanton slaughter by Kalistani gangs of both Sikhs and Hindus. For example, just one example, policemen. Two-thirds of the Punjab police force were and are Sikhs themselves. Yet they were the enemy, and so they were picked off. More than 1,400, some say as high as 1,800 Policemen were killed by these gangs, uh, and so were hundreds of their family members. Uh, there's another example. Uh, a village uh, was called Boparai, I believe, and a, a Kalistani gang arrives in the morning. Is it true that uh, one of your family members is in the Punjab police? Yes, they said. Well, they shouldn't have said that. They dragged the entire family out into the courtyard, gunned them down. A 12-year-old girl escaped, ran around the building and hid in the next building. But it was so important, they must all die. They tracked her down, a 12-year-old girl, and shot her too. As a warning, as a punishment for having a family member who was trying to make a living as a, as a young policeman. 
So this eventually became, this bloodbath became unsustainable in any sense of the word. Uh, KPS Gill, notorious if you're on one side of the question, legendary if you are on the other, uh, decided to win the battle the hard way. Let's not pussyfoot around this. Uh, he played rough. He gave as good as he got. And uh, there were no doubt numerous extrajudicial executions by the police, uh, and they stamped it out the hard way. It wasn't pretty. But it succeeded. And by the end of 93, uh, the armed insurgency basically fizzled out. So I've, I, I've again edited quite a bit of violence. Uh, I've, I haven't mentioned the Air India bombing, for example. That doesn't count in, 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 the, in the killings that happened in India. Uh, but uh, if you add all of them together, it's at least 21,000, and I've seen figures as high as 35,000 people on all sides who died, and again, most of them were Sikhs. And I think for comparison purposes, you compare that to what happened in the uh, conflict between um, in Northern Ireland. Um, and I think it was almost 20 times the, the number of deaths that occurred in the Khalistan movement in Indian Punjab versus what happened in Northern Ireland. So just in terms of getting the scale of that violence um, and really understanding the, the level of it and the ferocity and brutality of it, as you pointed to in the example of hunting down that young girl. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to come now to uh, the diaspora because I think the diaspora has obviously played a critical role in keeping the issue alive and really putting it on the, on the map um, uh, in the beginning. Talk a little bit about the 1980s in Canada. Um, what was that like? How did the Khalistan kind of support networks pop up there to start with? And how did that evolve into, you know, some of the most horrific violence that we saw uh, with the Air India attack? Canada, Canada became at, the, at a very early stage, a kind of bolt hole, a handy uh, refuge uh, for Khalistani militants and, uh, and other refugees, people who just wanted to get away from, from the violence in Punjab. They could come to a peaceful country with the rule of law. And that rule of law was in many ways extremely generous to the Khalistanis. For example, Salvinda Parma. Salvinda Singh Parma was the mastermind of the Air India bombing. He was a venomous fanatic uh, who thought nothing of blowing an airplane out of the sky full of completely innocent civilians who had nothing to do with the struggle in Punjab and who included 80 children. 33 Sikhs, he didn't give a damn who he killed. He didn't even know who he killed. Just tried to blow two planes out of the sky. Succeeded with one of them, Air India Flight 182. And he came to Canada uh, late 70s, early 80s. And uh, India said, you know, he's wanted for murder back home. We want him extradited for murder. He killed two policemen. That was the accusation. And Canada said no. Didn't want to get involved in internal Indian squabbles. Many of the new immigrants to Canada were Sikhs, formed an important voting bloc. We don't want to offend them by taking sides against them, against their heroes. 
So no, we're, we're not going to send Palmar back to face trial in India because, among other things, we're not sure there will be a fair trial. We think the Indians will play rough. And hey, this is Canada. We don't do that. We won't have anything to do with that. But it went beyond that, beyond the strict observance of human rights law, stricter certainly than in India at the time. Uh, Canada bent over back, backwards to accommodate these people and to respect their rights uh, to the point that eventually it became completely absurd. Uh, and um, for example, we started talking about the Air India bombing, an entirely Canadian affair. Palmer uh, became a Canadian citizen. So were the other members of his terrorist group, the Baba Khalsa. Uh, and um, Canada uh, allowed them uh, to continue their activities, although it kept them under surveillance and wiretapped them for three months before the Air India bombing. They knew they were terrorists. They let them operate. They kept them under surveillance, but then, for privacy reasons, erased the tapes. Because we have a rule that unless they're committing a crime on that tape, privacy, human rights, destroy the tapes. Of course, it contained absolutely vital evidence. Essential evidence. You could actually hear, uh, we only have a transcript, which didn't stand up in court. We have a trans transcript of uh, Palmar calling one of his men to go book the tickets for the Air India bombing. Buy two tickets and uh, we'll check in the bombs and they'll explode in flight if they're on time. One of them wasn't. So uh, Canada bent over backwards to be nice. Very nice country. Uh, and that was a bit of a disaster for everyone involved. And there became a critical mass of adherents and supporters of the Khalistan movement in Canada, who, uh, in those, you ask about the 80s specifically, uh, who imposed a sort of rule of fear on anyone who would step outside. For example, Ujol de Sange. Uh, who became uh, federal cabinet minister, was once the uh, premier or chief minister, if you will, uh, in British Columbia, an important politician, elected and re-elected for 20 years in Canada. Uh, he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. If, you know, if you want to fight for Khalistan, okay, you, you go back to India and fight for Khalistan. But don't start beating up your critics here in Canada. And what happened to him? Of course, they nearly killed him. They beat him up. What about um, my friend Balraj Diyal in, uh, in Toronto? Uh, there was a compromise agreement at one point between, uh, called the Longawal Agreement, between Hashim Singh Longawal and uh, Rajiv Gandhi, Prime Minister, who succeeded his mother. And Balraj Diyal said, you know, uh, let's get together, had a Hindu Sikh Friendship Forum, they called a press conference, said, you know, we should, we should respect this longer wall agreement. It's a good compromise. Let's give peace a chance, was their message. And for that, for the crime of saying give peace a chance and endorsing that compromise, uh, he was met in the parking lot by five kids with baseball bats 
and hockey sticks, and he too nearly died. He was lucky to lucky to survive. So that there was a reign of terror. To some extent, uh, this happened in the UK as well, but I'm more knowledgeable of what happened in Canada, and it was certainly more extreme in Canada. Uh, there was a reign of terror which enforced political correctness upon the Sikh community to the point where when it finally came to a trial, we can talk about more about that if you want, but it went, uh, it very briefly, when it finally came to a trial, uh, witnesses were intimidated, murdered, silenced, and the trial was largely a failure because of that. I mean, there was uh, uh, one witness, Tara Singh Haya, who actually heard one of the accused essentially describe how he got the bomb on the plane. He heard, overheard a confession. He sat there and heard, heard him say it. Testified to it. Gave a statement on videotape, sworn affidavit. Murdered before the trial opened. Murdered before he could testify. Well, so much for that. Crucial evidence. Gone. Another woman said one of the accused knocked on her door late at night, asking to borrow her car so, so he could take bags to the airport. Guess what? This was the night before the bombs were checked in. And uh, he said, well, uh, don't worry, I'll bring your car back because I'm not going anywhere. Only the bags are going somewhere. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, she knew he was up to no good and refused him the use of a car. Uh, he did say, in addition, that if he were caught, she would never see him again. He's right about that. Anyway, the point of the story is that when it finally came to trial, you know, years and years later, she refused to repeat that on the witness stand. She knew what happened to her. He was dead. She knew what would happen to her if she talked. She'd be dead and her two children. So she said, uh, I don't remember anything. Well, she told this story several times to Canadian intelligence officers. She had signed statements that these statements were properly recorded. But because she wouldn't re repeat the story on the witness stand, the evidence was thrown out. Didn't count. All that story I just told you, it was, it was as though it never happened. So uh, Canada in the 80s and 90s and the 2000s, when it finally came to a trial, let them get away with it. It's uh, uh, maybe considered a heartless or cruel or cynical statement, but I would say that Canada let them get away with it. And notably, whether those leaders that you mentioned in the beginning, Ujjal Dasanjh and Balraj Diol, as well as witnesses during the trial um, and uh, Tara Hayer were all Sikh leaders. And so the intimidation, the violence was being perpetrated against Sikh leaders and Sikh individuals that wanted to speak out or did speak out in the case of uh, um, Tara Hire and others that were too scared to, to speak out. So I think that's important for people to understand is that this was a, a movement that was not just violent against non-Sikhs, but the majority of those that were killed, uh, intimidated, whether in India or in the diaspora, were they themselves Sikhs and that spoke out against the movement. Um, 
No, you know, one thing I, I'm a lawyer by background. So as I was reading the book, I was, you know, vacillating between being extremely angry and frustrated to really being baffled at what I was reading in terms of the level of failures, um, specifically in the uh, case of the bombing of Air India Flight one, uh, 182, which killed 329 people in terms of the investigation, failures in the investigation, failures in the follow-up, failures in the actual trial, um, and how the judge, um, you know, just discarded evidence and almost the lack of witness protection laws or um, uh, provisions. If you could talk a little bit about, you know, the systematic failure, was it just a level of incompetence? Was there something else, you know, more sinister or what was yeah. going on? Because you saw it at well, every level that, and every stage. Yes. It is a fair question to raise that question. Was it more than incompetence? Was there something else? Because it's extremely fishy. And it's hard for people sitting in India for certain uh, to comprehend how, you know, I said that Canada was a very nice country. Very soft, very pleasant very solicitous of your human rights. And we're proud of that. No reason we shouldn't be. But uh, the failures you described uh, were so extreme that it does raise the question whether it goes beyond incompetence, both in terms of before the bombing, the failure to prevent the bombing when we knew that there were terrorists plotting in Canada. I mean, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service had two officers that actually tailed Palmar and his bomb maker, Indigit Brayat, into the woods to do a test bombing <laughs> while they listened and watched three weeks before the real thing. Palmar goes over to Vancouver Island to meet Rayat. How's the bomb making going? They drive into the woods. Boom, there's a big, and the, the two surveillance officers, they're scared out of their wits. What the hell was that? They're ducking behind a tree. What's going on? And they still didn't figure out what was going on. They didn't stop them and search them. Well, we're not policemen. We're just intelligence officers. We're not gathering evidence. You see, we're gathering intelligence and blah, 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 blah. So there was a failure to heed warnings before the bombing. There was catastrophic failure to prevent the placement of the bomb and its explosion. Then afterwards, there was, as you indicate, uh, a catastrophic failure to investigate effectively uh, because, uh, in part, because they didn't know about modern terrorism much. I mean, 1980s people, you know, you didn't have to take off your shoes. Yeah. They didn't even reconcile the bags that went on the plane with whether the passenger took their seat. Can you imagine that today? I don't think you could. But that's what it was, you know, you have to sort of get out of today's mindset and think like it's the early 80s before this became commonplace. And then, of course, as you indicate, there was a third failure of the justice system to bring the hammer down on these people. And my own belief is that it was incompetence. I've certainly looked under every rock I can find to see if there was worse than that. Uh, for example, they didn't have Punjabi translators to listen to the tapes. I've described to you how they actually had one tape of Pama calling one of his henchmen. Okay, did you book the tickets? Well, they spoke in code. He said, is the story written yet? No. Was the code. 
And the guy said, no, well, do that work first, okay? And then a few minutes later, guess who gets a call? Canadian Pacific Airlines gets a call from a gentleman who is uh, uh, a Sikh gentleman uh, who wants to book two tickets flying in opposite directions out from Vancouver around the world, connecting both connecting with Air India flights. Uh, and then uh, there's another call in which the henchman calls Pama and says, okay, the story's written. Do you want to come over and see it? I'll be right there. Then there are surveillance men out in the street and they see Pama get in his car and drive off in the direction of the henchman's house. A whole series of coincidences, aren't there? Then we find out that the gentleman who made the bookings uh, left a phone number which happened to match the guy on the, that Pama was calling. Okay, so it's all starting to link up now. It sounds like we've got a tape of the booking of the tickets for the bombing. And then there's another call to Canadian Pacific Airlines to adjust one of the bookings so that there wouldn't be a connection in Toronto. Uh, there wouldn't be a connection in Montreal. There'd be a connection in, in Toronto instead. Anyway, the point of the story is this, that they actually had a tape of the booking of the tickets for the Air India bombing, which closed the circle on who did what and when and fit the evidence precisely. And that tape doesn't exist because it was wiped out for the reasons I gave earlier. Well, you know, we didn't hear a crime. But they didn't have Punjabi translators. The tapes piled up. And then when they finally listened to it, they didn't know who these people are. What, what, were they? what does it mean when somebody, you don't, you don't know anything about them? They call and they say, is the story written yet? Well, without the context, you don't understand what this is about. Sure. Unless you already know when the tickets were booked, where the flights were, 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 were going, and so on. To put, you couldn't put the puzzle together unless you knew all that. They should have known all of that, but they didn't. So all of these failures, in the end, you can't say that there was anything worse than incompetence, but you can say that it was monumental incompetence. Sure. And there was also a lot of actual public threats of violence. I think um, you noted that uh, Talvinder Singh Parmar, the mastermind, his number two, Ajay Singh Bagri, actually, you know, was in the U.S. In, at Times Square um, in 1985 and literally in his speech there, exhorting his, uh, you know, those in attendance to commit violence, threatening violence, um, obviously, you know, spewing hatred against Hindus. So, and then there were a lot of inputs coming from intelligence in India that there was something coming. So it wasn't that, you know, even beyond what Canadian intelligence and police were gathering themselves, that there wasn't, there weren't already publicly made threats. There was an intelligence coming from India as well. So, you know, why was it ignored though? I mean, I guess it, well, even if we say it's incompetence. That, well, for one thing, the people who heard what Bagri said in New York didn't understand a word of Punjabi. They didn't know he said it. What he said was, blood for blood. Revenge. It was, a, it was a speech about revenge. That's where the title of my book originated. It was actually his speech at the founding convention of the World Sikh Organization at Madison Square Garden in New York, July 28th of 1984, not 85. And uh, in his speech, uh, he never 
he gave the keynote speech because Parma wasn't allowed into the United States. The family with Parma, and they said, no, you, you, you can't come into the U.S., so Bagri spoke in his place and repeated basically the lines that he had been hearing Parma say for many weeks and months now. And he said, we've got to get our revenge on these Hindus. And until, and this is a quote, I give you my solemn assurance that until we kill 50,000 Hindus, we will not rest. Woo. And the crowd, which is jam-packed in Madison Square Garden, with a line of bored, uncomprehending New York policemen sitting around watching all this, not knowing what was going on, not understanding a word, the crowd interrupted Bagri and said, blood for blood, Indira bitch, death to her, Hindu dogs, death to them. Repeatedly. That's what this speech was all about. So I take your point. It wasn't just a bunch of secret evidence that was mishandled by dim-witted Canadian policemen. It was public evidence, if anyone was even paying attention, and they weren't. No, one other thing that struck me when reading the book was uh, the voices of the victims and the repeated uh, refrain that they felt let down, they felt ignored. Um, you know, beyond the trial, it felt like this attack, if I were to compare this to 9-11, that has still has resonance in the American consciousness, that this uh, attack on Air India never really resonated with the Canadian people, even though the majority of the victims were in fact Canadian. Um, what is that? Would you agree with that? And what do you attribute that to? Well, I, I'm always kind of hopeful that people won't ask that question because it's embarrassing as a Canadian to give you an honest answer. Mm. What accounts for that? Would you imagine that if it were an Air Canada plane that were blown up full of white people from Toronto, that the investigation would have been as lackadaisical? Oh, we didn't have a translator. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll get around to it next week. Uh, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney at Canada, as he then was, found Rajiv Gandhi to offer condolences for the loss of what were overwhelmingly Canadian citizens. Mm. I mean, it wasn't even recognized that these were Canadians. Just assumed, well, they're on Air India, a bunch of brown people. Uh, the urgency didn't seem to be there. So that's why I say this is, um, although it's uncomfortable for me to answer this, uh, it's also embarrassing. It's a fair question. And I think that the answer is yes, that if it was a Canada full of white people from Toronto, that it would have been handled with more aggression. And there would have been a determination and a demand for justice that would have been irresistible. This was the deadliest terrorist attack anywhere until 9-11. This is 329 on Air India 182, plus the two baggage handlers in Japan who were trying to load the other bomb on another Air India plane, but it blew up early on the ground. Killed them both, injured another four. So the death toll would have been even higher if things had gone right as the bombers saw it. 
So what accounts, yeah, we've accounted for these failures by uh, finding incompetence already. Was there also an element of racism? I'm afraid we have to answer yes. I, 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 I don't think that I could imagine the same sort of feeble response, almost indifference. I, I mean, the, the families got the back of the hand from the government. The government, when they first went, the plane was first blown up and went down in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Ireland. The government's main, the government of Canada's main interest was sending lawyers to make sure that there was no finding that there was even a bomb on the plane because Canada's concern was liability. Didn't want to help be held responsible for what it was, in fact, responsible for, and that was baggage security. You don't put a bag on a plane when the passenger never took his seat. I mean, if that happens, you take that bag off the plane. Now, now that's normal. Then it was abnormal, but not for Air Canada, not for Air India, which was warning Canada. Look, there's threats. There's, a, there's basically a, a war going on in Punjab. These people will stop at nothing. We're getting threats from everywhere. We've got to be really careful with the baggage. That was June the 1st. The bombing was on June 23rd. June the 1st, the telex went to all the, the top people of the Toronto airport, the RCMP. And the RCMP, RCMP said, oh, the Indians are trying to get extra security just for them again. Oh, they're doing this all the time. You know, enough. They're just trying to get free security. They blew them off. So I'm sorry this is not a very satisfactory answer to either of us that Canada was asleep at the switch in this respect, but I'm afraid that's the truth of it. And at the end of the day, only one person actually served, was convicted and served any jail time. And that is Inderjeet Singh Rayat for being the bomb maker. Um, and even though he admitted that he it was under the instructions of Barmar, Barmar never um, was convicted and he ended up dying in India in a, um, in a shootout with uh, Punjab police. And of course the other accused Ajay Singh Bagri and um, um, Malik. Reputman, yes, Singh Think about Malik, they're also never convicted and living free to this day, correct? Yes, that is correct. Yes. And so, you know, I guess um, we, we, we had the trial, we had the lack of convictions, um, but now you fast forward and openly in Canada to this day, forget about not serving justice to the victims, but you actually seeing, you see an open celebration of the quote unquote martyrs of this attack, um, particularly with Dalvinder Singh Parmar being celebrated openly and um, being celebrated in a way where Canadian politicians come to these um, events where posters of Dalvinder Singh Parmar are, you know, um, are wide in the open and he's celebrated as a martyr. Can you talk a little bit about what the Canadian response in terms of political leaders has been um, to this glorification of violence and glorification of terrorist leaders? Oh, has there been a response? <laughs> I, 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 I haven't noticed that. That's the problem. Yeah. In fact, um, if there's one thing that embarrasses me as a Canadian even more than your last question, uh, it's this one. The fact of the matter is that uh, the 
worst mass murderer in Canadian history, Tovinda Palmar, is today glorified and respected and portrayed on the side of the Gurdwara in Surrey, British Columbia. That's the second largest city in British Columbia. Uh, the fact that his portrait is displayed as a martyr and a hero of the Sikh nation, a model for Sikh youth, uh, is humiliating to me as a Canadian. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, and the excuses offered, which the politicians eagerly adopt, or so it seems, although they, they don't like to talk about this very much, the excuse offered is that, well, he was never convicted. Yeah, well, he's dead. Uh, I mean, people still say this to you. They say, well, he was never convicted. So you can't say that he blew up Air India. Well, actually, yes, I can, because there was abundant evidence, not only in the trial, but in a series of trials and in a long judicial inquiry, all totaling about eight years of sworn testimony, documentary evidence, wiretap transcripts, the works, all showing beyond a shadow of doubt, as confirmed by the bomb maker Rayat himself, that Palmar was indeed responsible and the leader and the instigator of the Air India bomb plot. So we know this for a fact. We know they went into the woods to do a test bombing. We know that Palmar asked Rayat to build the bombs. These are certainties. These are facts. So this excuse won't wash. Oh, well, he wasn't convicted. Yeah, well, he was, he's been dead for 30 years. He was killed in 1992, October of 1992, in a little village called Tangarayan in Punjab. So the fact that he is uh, glorified as a great hero by Khalistanis today in Canada is, as I say, a humiliating fact. And uh, when you mention it, uh, politicians scurry away. Generally speaking, Canadian politicians try to avoid the subject because they think that this represents the feelings of the entire Sikh community. And they're going to lose valuable votes in some swing ridings that tend to go this way or that way in uh, places like Brampton, Ontario, uh, Toronto, uh, or Surrey, BC, near Vancouver. Uh, there's about half a dozen writings, po political districts, where the outcome can, could potentially be affected by the Sikh vote. And the politicians think that the Sikh vote is the Khalistani vote. It isn't. Uh, we've already discussed Ujjal Dassange, for example, elected and re-elected for 20 years. Well, so what's, what are you afraid of exactly? Uh, Tara Singhaya's son was elected and re-elected for uh, 12 years as a member of the British Columbia legislature. So what are you afraid of? That if you say something bad about the Khalistan movement, if you say something bad about a mass murderer, you're afraid, afraid that you'll lose votes in the Sikh community, which voted for Ujjal Assange, who slammed the Khalistanis publicly for his entire political career. He's retired now. So um, the politicians have been craven and dishonest in their accounting for these events. The worst example, of course, is that of Jagmeet Singh, 
who you may have heard of. He's the leader of the third largest party in the Canadian Parliament. Uh, his party holds the balance of power, but propping up the liberal minority government at the moment and in the last parliament. And uh, when he was first elected as a national party leader, as a lifelong Sikh activist, devoted to Sikh causes, uh, I asked him, okay, well, congratulations on your big win. Now, what do you say about the pictures of Parma? Do you think that should, that should that's okay? Is that appropriate? Oh, he changed the subject. Oh yeah, we we uh, we we didn't like the bombing. Uh, the bombing was terrible. Yeah, well, that wasn't the question. Sir. <laughs> the question was, will you condemn the display of pictures, martyr pictures, honoring this mass murderer? Oh, he changed the subject again, two times, three times, four times, five times. I asked him. He refused to take any of those five chances to denounce the display of martyr pictures of Canada's worst mass murderer. Now, that, that is, is just an incredible statement that I've just told you. I mean, how in a democracy does a politician get away with that? Well, the answer is that in the immediate aftermath of that interview, he did not get away with it. He was roasted, and it took him five months. But after five months, he reversed himself and said that he now accepted that uh, Palmer was indeed the author of the Air India bombing. He didn't go out of his way to condemn the display of martyr pictures, but hey, I'll take what I get. Uh, you know? Uh, so you asked uh, what has been the response in Canada to the display of these obscene displays of respect for this vile individual. And uh, the answer is the response has been feeble. Not good enough. And I think you draw a comparison in the book also. It's in for the U.S. context that if somewhere to have displays of Osama bin Laden, I don't think you would ever see politicians coming to those events and openly associating themselves with those events. I don't um, think so. Uh, you know, I want to um, maybe just talk a little bit for look a little bit forward in how you see things evolving over the next few years, um, you know, maybe mainly in Canada, but also more generally for the Khalistan movement. Do you see hope or do you see things deteriorating even further? Obviously, there have been a lot of, um, you know, recent incidents and some turmoil in Punjab in India. Um, there was recently uh, a bomb blast and there was an issue with the prime minister's security detail when he came there and obviously the farm laws have been conflated with Khalistan Khalistani activists or they have somewhat infiltrated and hijacked that um, issue so there's been a lot of things happening and then also some blasphemy killings um, uh, by uh, some Sikhs against uh, other Sikhs maybe if you can talk a little bit about where do you see things moving both um, in India um, as well as in the diaspora and particularly Canada I don't see them moving to a good place. Um, that's partly because where they're actually moving to in real time is the internet, where apparently anything goes. Um, and it, uh, I'll give you one example of how it really is today. Being a Khalistani in cyberspace, uh, they're extremely adept, although it's a very small group. I tend to meet the same eight names every time. Um, 
spirited activity online, which is dedicated uh, to producing memes and little videos and posters, catchy phrases, uh, threatening violence in Punjab, uh, vilifying uh, the government of India as fascist and genocidal, uh, lying about the true history of the independence struggle in Punjab in the 80s and early 90s, and uh, making threats against their critics, uh, including myself, the little guy from the National Sikh Youth Federation in the UK, uh, publishes a tweet saying, well, in English, it's Terry Molesky. But in Punjabi, we say, and then it's Gamuti script, so most people can't read it. And it's the name of Lala Jagat Narayan, who was assassinated after criticizing Bindran Wali in 1981. We discussed him a moment ago. So, and then there's a picture of an assault rifle at the bottom of the tweet. So this is a death threat against a journalist, reminding him of what happened to another journalist who stood in the way of the Khalistan movement back in the day, 40 years ago. We remember. So uh, once again, a journalist is in the gun sites. Um, he only got six retweets, I'm happy to say. So I guess it, it didn't exactly set the internet on fire. But, uh, it didn't get a lot of takers, but he made his point. And of course, the National CU Federation is named, well, it just sounds a lot like the International CU Federation, which is a banned terrorist organization in India and in Canada and the US, like the Baba Khalsa. So uh, where I see it in the short term is going, uh, there's, there's quite a venomous campaign going on online. Um, the remarks about my good self are really only a very tiny microscopic part of it. Um, most of it is aimed at um, promoting the idea that uh, Sikhs are persecuted and the victims of genocide at the hands of the government of India. Uh, that This has always been true, always will be true, and we've got to have our independent state. So there's no uh, lessening of the energy of the Khalistan movement. It's just that it's virtual, it's digital. And nobody does anything about it. In fact, what happened recently was that they made an attack on the Indian government on Twitter by publishing, oh, well, the most Indians, hundreds of millions of Indians, most of India knew perfectly well that the Indian police were carrying out a campaign of mass rape of uh, Khalistan political activists in Punjab in the 80s. Now, uh, this is according to those who have studied the episode in depth, uh, speaking of some pro-Khalistan human rights organizations, I'm speaking of Human Rights Watch, Physicians for Human Rights, NSAF, Amnesty International, it's been very thoroughly studied. Hundreds of, excuse me, I'm sorry about that. Hundreds of um, 
they, they studied this episode, and my point was that there's no record of, there's certainly records of extrajudicial executions, unforgivable on the part of the Punjab police, torture by the Punjab police, no doubt about it. But there's no, nothing in the historical record about this campaign of rape, which they say was a common practice. Well, why isn't it, you know, did all the witnesses, the hundreds of witnesses that were interviewed for all these grim reports on murder and torture by the police, they didn't, they forgot about this? They forgot to mention it? I don't think so. It's made up, is what I'm saying to you. This is what's happening in the internet age to the Khalistan movement. They're making up stories. So now, Operation Blue Star, 1984, the Golden Temple, Amritsar genocide, 10,000 dead. Okay, so they just blow the figures up by 10 times and say uh, 10,000 dead, dead. Well, you cannot find any responsible account, any serious account, even by Sikh uh, sources, that says any such thing. So they're making it up, number one, and number two, they're getting away with it. After that tweet was published, friend of mine in New York responded, say, wait a minute, he's a Sikh. And he responded on Twitter and said, wait a minute, you know, here are quotes from Simranjit Singh Man, the, the veteran uh, Khalistani leader, separatist leader in Punjab, still around. They said, no, that doesn't happen. There were a lot of rapes committed by militant gangs, rivals of mine, in the Khalistan movement, not by the police. And here are contemporary news accounts, and here are uh, reports by Sikh sociologists uh, from the largest university in Punjab, in Amritsar, uh, all saying that this is bunk. What happened to that guy? Well, nowadays they don't meet you in the parking lot with, with baseball bats, bats and hockey sticks, as they did with my friend Balraj Deol back in 85. Oh, no, it's much more sophisticated now. Now what they do is they have a campaign of mass reporting to report you to Twitter for hate. They are this guy's fermenting hate. Now, so they fermented hate against Indians by accusing them all and their hundreds of millions of conniving and winking at this campaign of mass rape that didn't happen. But that's okay. But producing evidence that that's not true is considered hate, hateful conduct by Twitter, apparently, because what happened to my friend in New York is that his account was shuttered by Twitter. They took it down. He's banned from Twitter. Why? Hateful conduct. Where's the hateful conduct? I quoted facts. But there are teams uh, specializing in this kind of mass reporting that set themselves up and they actually and, and they tweet about it. They say, oh, here's another scalp. Here's another suspension that we've we've there was another one, a historian who who had a pretty good following, I don't know, about at least three or four hundred thousand followers, who was shut down just last week by this same technique. So this is where the war is moving to. Now you may say, well I, I much prefer this kind of cyber war with somebody losing a Twitter account rather than losing their life. But it's not going to stop there. 
you're asking about the future. I say the future doesn't look good to me. I think these people are continuing their agitation. And I also think that the geopolitical environment uh, acts as a propellant. Uh, I mean, briefly stated, Pakistan's always been the essential additive, as I put it, the, the enabler, the big brother of the Khalistan movement. Well, guess what? Pakistan now has its own big brother in China, yeah. becoming a wholly owned subsidiary of China, deeply in debt to China, ever closer into China's orbit. So now India's got to face China and Pakistan, a sort of united team on its northern border. And what might be convenient, do you suppose, for the Chinese with respect to Khalistan? Well, the Chinese have already published uh, learned papers uh, in the Global Times. It's English language, the Communist Party of China's English language paper, saying, in effect, well, uh, you know, if, um, if, if India wants to defend the independence of Taiwan, we can do the same with independence movements in India, you know? And I think on that note, you actually mentioned in the book how um, the Sikhs for Justice leader, um, Bannu, had actually appealed to China um, for help and then also openly told Indian soldiers in the recent um, conflict with the Chinese soldiers on the border to defect, basically, that China's not your enemy. So we actually see that playing out in terms of this new dynamic and new player in all of this, in addition to Pakistan. So I want to end with this question, Terry. You kind of laid out a pretty grim uh, picture for the future, um, honest, but uh, somewhat grim. What can people do though? I mean, is there any steps, are there any steps that the Indian community and the diaspora can take, you know, those within the Sikh community or otherwise various governments, because the nature of the warfare has changed so dramatically. Obviously you touch up on, you know, free speech issues, uh, whatnot, um, online, I guess, how can this, you know, growing uh, threat or menace really be confronted? What are some of the ways that, um, you know, the diaspora or governments can confront it? Well, you just did by calling me. And uh, what what we need is uh, is a thousand similar occasions where people speak up. That's all I ask is for those who differ, those who don't swallow the Sikh for Justice propaganda and the Khalistani propaganda more generally, and those who want who who are disturbed uh, by China's aspirations, Pakistan's aspirations. Uh, and their support for the Khalistan movement uh, to speak up and make your voice heard in a thousand ways. Doing a podcast, doing Twitter, doing public meetings, whatever. But don't shut up anymore. The uh, general uh, diaspora, Indian diaspora, Indian NRIs, as you call them, uh, all over the world have been just like the rest of us worried about making a living, getting the kids to school on time and the quotidian concerns that have nothing to do with the politics back home in Punjab, which they just as soon forget. And this is entirely understandable. makes perfect sense. Uh, but um, they're a little bit complacent, if I may say so. 
in thinking that, oh, well, you know, nobody listens to these crazies anyway. Really? Have you seen the politicians lining up and smiling and waving at the gun-toting martyrs on the Vaisakhi parade floats in British Columbia? Uh, have you seen what's being said on Twitter? Uh, have you have you seen the growth of uh, the Khalistanis' presence in cyberspace? Have you seen their stucking up to Pakistan and to China, as you just mentioned? Uh, it's time, I think, uh, for uh, more Indians in the diaspora and in India to say, okay, we're going to call this out. We're going to step up and we're going to lay it out. Okay, here's your propaganda. You know, let's, let's pick, pick, pick one issue a week, whatever. Here's your propaganda saying, oh, Amritsar genocide, 10, you know, 10,000 were killed. Um, what Panun actually says, says it on videotape, is that the Indian Army in 1984 gathered 10,000 pilgrims, innocent pilgrims, and herded them into the Golden Temple to be killed. That was the genocide beginning. And uh, this is all false, but we need people who were there and people who live there today to say so. And the same thing if you, if you want to take the campaign of rape, fiction. Uh, Palmar is a big hero, fiction. Palmar was innocent. Oh, really? Well, then what, why did he ask for the bombs then? What, what were the bombs for exactly? Because we know for a fact that he commissioned Ray out to build the bombs. Now, just on each of these issues, if you really get your teeth into them, you have, a, you have a conclusive argument, not just a persuasive argument. You can end that argument. But I don't see that happening. People are just shrugging and saying, look, these, are these people are living in the past. Nobody's paying attention to them. Don't worry about it. Well, I wish there were nobody paying attention to them. That's what I, so that, that's what I, would, I would like to see more people speaking up about this, the odious propaganda that is going around. And I would like to see people more broadly across political parties. They, you know, like Indian diplomats are very polite. They want to have a good relationship with Canada. Canada wants to have a good relationship with India. Well, I'd like to see the Indian, in, in, Indian diplomatic corps be a little bit blunter in cases like Canada, though, so, really? You're going to put up with this? Well, you know what? You may, you may pay for it. India's, a, India's not a forgotten little country anymore. Those days are gone. Um, and it did happen to some degree, I believe, with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's trip, ill-fated trip to India in 2018 where it turned out that a, a convicted Khalistani terrorist was invited to his diplomatic receptions in Delhi and in Mumbai. Why? Because he was, he, he was a inside, he had the inside track in the Liberal Party of Canada. He was a Liberal Party volunteer. Oh, well, we'll put him on the guest list. And that blew up in Trudeau's face. 
nobody had bothered to check. They all thought, well, why would there be an issue? This guy is just a convicted terrorist being invited to, to dine with the prime minister at a glittering diplomatic reception in New Delhi. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it's absurd when you think about it. And of course, when it became public, it blew up. I mean, and in, in India, it was a huge story. Um, I know because it, it was my story, and they just <laughs> they stole it <laughs> quite readily. And put it in all our papers. Uh, they they didn't pay me for it. Uh, so there's an example where India w- was was fairly blunt uh, about what had happened, uh, and. Canada was fairly embarrassed. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. And, you know, we're not immune from that here in America. I think obviously we haven't had the same experience as our neighbors to the North in Canada, but, um, you know, Sikhs for Justice is based in New York. Um, we see a lot of uh, pro Khalistani groups getting statements from various members of Congress, state level officials that just no have, have no idea about these issues. So I think you're absolutely right. You know, what's in our power is the education is the awareness. And I think the first step is to that is just reading your book, um, blood for blood, you know, 50 years of the global Khalistan project. Um, I've been a follower of this issue my whole life and I learned so much just from reading this book. So I want to thank you again for sharing your time with us, Terry, and for writing this book and, um, um, we hope to continue, uh, speaking about, uh, speaking out on this issue, um, because it's critical and it's a threat. Um, and it's something that needs to be discussed more. So thank you again for joining us today, Terry. It was a pleasure. Well, having I enjoyed you. it very much. Thanks to you. Thanks for calling. And I, I enjoyed that discussion. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. If you want to help ensure that more of these get made, you can make a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org.